Good morning. Thank you again to the choir. I had multiple people come up to me from North Shore and ask if they could come in and just practice and sing with our choir. Yeah, sure, I guess. I don't know, talk to them. But they, they're obsessed with you guys. They're very jealous. So thank you. Thank you for all of your, your hard work. Um, I'm glad um, Jen is here. I got to run the PowerPoint in the first service. It was a disaster. Um, I was terrible at it. Um, it's significantly more stressful than preaching a sermon. So I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Um, never again. Um, this morning, we're back in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Mark 4, 21 through 34. We are in the middle of one of only two extended teachings of Jesus in the entire book of Mark. So last time we looked at the parable of the sower, and this morning we're going to look at three more kind of shorter um, parables. Remember, we're talking about these parables are about the kingdom. We've said that the kingdom is simply the, the rule and the reign of God. And as Jesus announced in his first words back in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom has started to come with him. It is here, but it is not yet fully here. And this is referred to as the already not yet of the kingdom. It is already here. It has come with Jesus, but it is not yet completely here. It is still coming and growing and expanding. And that is what Jesus is talking about with these parables this morning. He's talking about the kingdom. I want to I start off a bit differently um, this morning than I usually do. Um, I try and keep up a little bit with the kind of the non-Christian music scene. Um, some people may disagree with that a little bit, but there's really no better way to understand your culture and what they believe and, and what they think than by knowing kind of the art that they're producing and the songs that they are writing and what those things are about. Now, there's obviously some stuff we just don't need to listen to and we need to stay away from, but we've got to get out of the mindset that non-Christian equals evil and satanic. There's, there's this thing in the Bible that's called common grace, right? And God gives even non-Christians amazing abilities, and some of them produce great works of art with those abilities. And by being, being familiar with that, we can better understand them and better relate with them and better kind of find an avenue for the gospel um, with the people around us. Anyways, I bring that up. Because the point I want to make is that I recently heard a song on the radio that absolutely fascinated me. Right? The song is by a band named Imagine Dragons. I know nothing about them. I don't know them, so I'm not recommending them. I just know that their name is pretty cool because I like imagining things and I like dragons. Um, so that sounds cool. But, so I'm not recommending the band. I'm just telling you about one specific song that really caught my eye. Um, this song is called Demons. Right now, it's not about physical or spiritual kind of evil demons. It's about personal demons, the things that we don't like about ourselves, the things that we really wrestle with and struggle with throughout our lives. It's an extremely theological song and a very accurate understanding of sin and the state of our hearts, and it is remarkably catchy. Listen to it way too many times. But go and read the lyrics. They're, they're really interesting. So the song is about the singer's understanding of his own wickedness. He talks about the beast that is within himself. He talks about the idolatry um, in our world and sinners and how we don't just make some bad choices here and there, but that our hearts are completely wrapped up in sin and evil. He says that we have made a mess of everything. He says that no matter what we do, it's motivated by greed. He admits that he knows that he is hell bound. And then after all this follows my favorite line in the song. And it's the point that I want to make here this morning. After this admission of his own wickedness, the mess that he's made of things, and the hopelessness of his condition, the song explodes into the line, this is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom 
come. Now, that is strong, all right? And that is exactly what we are talking about this morning. We're talking about a kingdom. What is a kingdom? It's where you rule. It is where you reign, and you have authority, and you make the decisions. And this singer, in this song, he says, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is the result, this is my inheritance, this is my kingdom. Greed, sin, grave, hell, and I cannot escape it. I could not have said that better myself. That is an amazing recognition uh, by a non-Christian songwriter. And this guy's theology is pretty spot on to this point. This is what happens apart from God. This is the result of our kingdom. Nothing but disappointment and sin and loneliness and eventually hell. That's what happens when we're king and we're in charge. It is because the demons are so interwoven into our soul. We, we try and we try, but we always fail. We, we can't escape it. We can't change ourselves. We can't get rid of our own demons. This is my kingdom come. But Jesus Christ teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come. And that's what we're talking about this morning. God's kingdom. What it's like and how it comes. There are two kingdoms. That's it. There are really only two. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of yourself. Either God rules or you rule. And those are really the only two options. This non-Christian band, Imagine Dragons, can even recognize the outcome when we try and rule our own kingdom. So what we want to do this morning is see what we can learn about God's kingdom and how it is different. The first five verses this morning, they, they tie us back to last time. They are about the purpose of the parables, why Jesus is teaching in this strange way. And then we'll look at the second parable, and the second parable is about how the kingdom grows. And then we'll close by looking at the final parable, which teaches us how large the kingdom grows grows. Right? How the kingdom grows and how large the kingdom grows. So, we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. You can find it printed inside your bulletins. I'll follow along as I read. This is God's word. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Let's thank you for the blessing and the opportunity to come together and to worship you and to study your word. Um, we pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts right now on the text, on what you want us 
take it out of it, Father. Speak to us through your word. Change us through your word. And just give us just a heart and a passion to, to know your word and to, and to treasure it in our hearts, as, as Edwin said. So, Father, right now we pray that this time would be about Jesus Christ. Um, I pray that he would get the glory and the honor and you would reveal him to us um, in a fresh way this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about the kingdom. I think actually the best way to understand the kingdom is to look at the first and the last two chapters of the Bible. All right, the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation. That's where we get the best picture of what God's kingdom is, his, his rule and his reign, what that entails. We see a perfect garden in the beginning developed into a perfect city at the end. And both are characterized by a lot of things, but they are most characterized by the unobstructed presence of God. All right? That's why the kingdom is so great. It is God with us. There is perfect relationship, no more sin, no more evil, no more tears, no war, no sickness, just joy and worship and fellowship unceasing. That's the kingdom, right? That's what God's kingdom is. That's what Jesus is bringing with him, and that's what he is teaching us about in these parables this morning. So he first opens by talking about the purpose of the parables in the first few verses. This ties back to what we talked about last time. He starts off pretty simply in verse 21 there. You don't hide lamps under things, right? That, that makes sense. We don't have any overhead lights in the parsonage next door, so it would be completely ineffective if I shoved all the lamps under the bed, right? It would, it would be dark, and Melissa would run into even more things. Um, that would be in trouble, um, right? The point of a lamp is to shine, to reveal, to bring light to things, right? This one's not that hard to figure out. And then he, he, he um, goes on there in verse 22. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, are you confused? Right? If, if you paid attention in our last sermon, that verse should confuse you a little bit. Remember last time, we, we talked about how Jesus spoke in parables. And back in verse 12, it tells us, So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand. And so we said that part of the purpose of Jesus teaching in parables was to veil, was to keep Secret. It was to confirm people in their hard-heartedness and their rejection of God. But now, here all of a sudden, we have Jesus saying, nothing is hidden except to be revealed. So, what is going on? Do those two things contradict each other? Well, think back a number of weeks ago, even before that, when we talked about actual demons. All right? Not the song demon, but, but real spiritual demons. What happened every time Jesus encountered a demon? Well, the demon recognized who Jesus was. He knew much better than anyone else at the time knew who Jesus was. But what does Jesus do? The, the demon tries to start to reveal it, tries to start to say something about Jesus, and Jesus shuts him up every time. He says, be silent, do not speak. And we said that this was an important theme in the book of Mark called the, the Messianic Secret. We said that things were hidden and veiled for a short period of time, ultimately, because Jesus Christ could not be completely understood until the cross. Until it was seen just what exactly he had come to do, people would continue to misunderstand him. So for a time, things were a bit hidden, but they were hidden ultimately to be revealed. After the cross, after the resurrection, we don't have a single example in all of the New Testament of the apostles teaching in parables. Right? They're not teaching that way anymore. No, they are now explaining openly what was explained to them by Jesus. They are declaring the truth 
that is now so evident. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, come to live and die in the place of sinners. So that they might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Now the secret has been revealed. It has come to light. The lamp is shining. And now we are called to go and clearly explain. Right? I don't want to find you on the street corner teaching people parables. Right? I want you clearly explaining the gospel to them. Right? With everyone that we come in contact with. He continues on there in verse 24 and 25. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this is a tough teaching. But notice again the emphasis on hearing. Thirteen times we said in this one chapter, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you hearing? Are you understanding? But what does that mean? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, it means simply that the standard that you set for others um, will be the standard set for you. You will be judged based upon how you judge others, which honestly is really bad news for most of us because we are so prone to holding everyone to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. But while all that is true, this is not primarily what Jesus is talking about here. Remember, we're talking about the kingdom. And he's saying when it comes to the kingdom, you will get out of it what you put into it. You will get out of it what you put into it. The more you hear, the more you understand. The more you listen, the more will be explained to you. But the reverse is also true. Stop up your ears, fail to listen, reject the truth, and you will find yourself further and further away. Do not make the mistake of of thinking that you can just continue to put this off indefinitely. There comes a point, as we saw with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where God at some point pulls back. There there comes a point when we have so hardened ourselves to the truth that it becomes impossible for us to hear. Listen, in spiritual matters, standing still is impossible. You are either gaining or you are losing. You are either advancing or you are declining. So that is the purpose of the parables. They are ultimately to make known. To, to reveal. And they are revealing the kingdom, which we now turn in our last two parables. The first one is there in verses 26 through 29. Now, if you don't believe in God's providence, you should. I had no idea what Pastor Ed was going to preach on last week. I didn't ask him to preach on anything. I don't think he got back to BJ until late Saturday night. Um, but if you notice this text, that what this parable is about is almost exactly what he taught on last week. Right? This parable is about how the kingdom grows. And we talked about it last time. The kingdom grows by the word. It doesn't grow by our brilliant strategies. It doesn't grow based upon how good or bad of a preacher I am. It doesn't grow based upon how good or skillful you are at sharing the gospel. It doesn't grow by anything that we do. It grows by the sovereignty of God as he works through his word. Look at those verses. What is the farmer doing? He's sleeping. But the seed is sprouting and growing anyway, even though he doesn't even know how it happens. That's the sovereignty part. God is in control. He gives the growth. He is the one that determines what happens with the sown seed. Paul makes this exact same point in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 7. He writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Notice how Paul regards himself. We could learn from this, I think. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul says, in comparison to God, I am nothing. And that is humility. That is a correct understanding of our position before God. Just because I'm up front speaking to you guys doesn't make me any more important. In comparison to God, I am nothing. We don't do it. We can't do it. We cannot make it happen in our own power. I, as a fellow sinner, do not have the power or the ability within me to save a sinner. I cannot bring a dead heart back to life. God does all of that. But none of that. God's sovereignty and salvation and His prerogative to build the kingdom negates our responsibility. None of that means that we are not still called to labor and to act and to preach the gospel. We very clearly are. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Right? We're talking about how we see both of those in Scripture very clearly, and we see both of them in our parable this morning. You see the man. What is he doing? He is sowing the seed. And while he sleeps, God is bringing the growth. But then what happens when he wakes up and he sees the growth? He goes straight to work, and he harvests. 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20 says that God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He has made us His ambassadors. So we must work and speak and share. But we do all of that with the truth of this parable in mind, that it is God who gives the growth. We have the distinct privilege of laboring with God, but He is the one who brings the fruit. We cannot save anyone ourselves. Only God in His great love and mercy can save a sinner. But He graciously chooses to work through us. God is sovereign in salvation. Jonah 2.9 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Our song that we just finished said that God is mighty to save. He is the author of salvation. He's the one that does it. But we go and work with Him and for Him. He sends us out and He chooses to work through His people. That is an amazing privilege. Are you being an ambassador for Christ? Are you scattering any seed like the man in this parable? And remember last time we said very clearly that the seed is the Word. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, Through the living and abiding Word of God. The seed is God's Word. It is the tool through which God works in the world today. And it is an effective tool. The parable is similar to Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, which reads, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is power. It is effective, and it is the primary means through which God works. And people really, I think, sometimes miss that today. We, we try to make Christianity about all these weird, abstract, indescribable, mystical experiences. Right? People love spirituality today. Right? It's back. Right? It's, it's, it's in vogue again. 
But organized religion, like, like this, is, is passe. We decided that how God works through His Word isn't good enough. So we go off looking for revelation and inspiration and motivation from other sources. God gave me a sign. I, I had this feeling. Jesus spoke to me in a dream. Um, we, we get misunderstood and we satisfy, We are unsatisfied with God's Word. So we, we seek a thrill. We seek something ecstatic or mystical outside of the Word. But in Matthew 12, 39, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for demanding a sign from Him. He says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He says no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? What is very clearly the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, look, I've done plenty. I've done all of these miraculous things. I have proved that I am who I say that I am. But even if that were not enough, in a few short years, I am going to die and then come back to life. That's your sign. If that's not enough, then nothing else will be. We don't need signs and wonders and these weird, crazy, inexplicable things like visions anymore. We have the Word. And by seeking after all these other things outside the Word, we demonstrate that we do not properly value the Word. In 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, Paul writes about the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You see that every there? It means every, alright? And this is what is referred to as the sufficiency of Scripture. We see it also in Jude verse 3 where he writes about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Right? The Scriptures were delivered once and for all. That was it. No more. And salvation comes through them. And they equip us for every good work. So Scripture is the only thing that we need for salvation and Christian living. It reveals to us who God is and His plan for salvation. And it reveals to us how we are to relate to Him. They are sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need any more special revelation. We've got the Word. And that should be enough. And Peter stunningly makes this point in one of my favorite passages in the Bible. 2 Peter 1, verses 16-21. through 21. This is a fascinating passage. He's talking about the transfiguration. Right? This is when um, Jesus took Peter and two others up with him on the mount. And Jesus reveals himself to them in all of his glory and his splendor. He was veiled. He unveiled himself for a time. And they beheld Christ in all of his greatness. And not only that, but Peter then tells us that he personally experienced, he heard the voice of God the Father speaking to him from heaven. Right? That's pretty amazing. But what does Paul Peter say in the very next verse? In verse 19. He says, But we have something more sure. The prophetic word, which you will do well to pay attention to. <laughs> right? Are you serious, Peter? Are you, do you actually mean that? He is saying that he personally experienced the voice of God speaking to him out loud, but that he has something more sure. God's written word, the Bible, the scriptures. Now talk about a mystical, spiritual experience. But Peter says, don't focus on that. Don't look for that. We've got something better. We have God's word. 
we have the Word written down for us and preserved for us so that we can hear from God whenever we want. It's all on all of our phones now. At any point in time, we can go and read and hear from God in His Word. We've got to start valuing the Word as Peter valued the Word. We've got to value the Word as Jesus Himself valued the Word. Constantly quoting it and constantly talking about it. We've got to stop looking for all this extra weird stuff and start trusting Jesus that He is correct here, that the kingdom comes through the Word. The kingdom comes through the Word, not through crazy, mystical experiences and signs and wonders. It comes through the Word. Do you actually believe that? Does your knowledge of the Word and the time that you spend in the Word demonstrate that? Because the Word is so key. We will rise and fall here at Woodside dependent on God's, based upon our dependence on God's Word. Do you know God's Word? Tell me. Can you tell me what the book of Habakkuk is about? Can you even find the book of Habakkuk? It's, it's a hard one. How well do you know Second Chronicles? Because these books are part of God's Word. Do you care? Do you actually value the Word? Do you spend time in it every day? Do you know it? I read one study that made the claim, and you know, studies are always, you never know, but this statistic was argued that 80% of Christians had never read all of the Bible. And it made the same claim that only 30% of Christians read the Bible more than just on Sunday mornings at church. Now, hopefully, those statistics are way off. But we have a serious problem. We, we believe here that the Word is so important that we are starting a new series in Sunday school. And sadly, this day age, people know nothing about their Bibles. So we want to, to fix that problem. So what we're going to do, and we started this week with just an introduction, so you're not too late if you can start coming next week. But what we're going to do is every week, we're going to spend our time at Sunday school looking at one book of the Bible. Right, we're going to spend 66 weeks, or 66 books, and we're going to go through the entire Bible. And in about 30 or 40 minutes, we're going to cover every book, and we're going to explain to you the main idea of the book, we're going to explain to you the story, the key characters, and what's happening in the book. And then every week, every single book, we'll close by the most important thing. We're going to do what Jesus does in Luke 24, and we're going to explain what these books in the Old Testament teach us about Jesus Christ. We're going to connect every single book to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. What does the book of Judges teach us about the gospel? Because Jesus tells us that it's about him. Right? He comes in Luke 24, 27 and says, hey guys, by the way, that Old Testament, it's about me. All right? And we're going to take him at his word there. And we're going to study the Old Testament. And we're going to see how those books point us forward to Jesus Christ. We've got to start valuing the Word. We've got to know something about this book that we claim to believe is inspired and given to us from God and to be the means through which He saves people. Listen, I'm not going to be personally offended if you don't come. I don't, I don't particularly care. It's, it's your choice. But we've had some really good times so far in Sunday school, and now we're going to really get down to it. We're going to learn the Word. We're going to equip ourselves with great knowledge of the thing that Paul says makes us wise for salvation, and that equips us for every good work. So, 10 o'clock every Sunday, we'll be in this room, we'll be studying a book of the Bible every week, and I think it'll be a really good, um, fruitful time. So that's the seed. That is the Word, and it is how God grows His kingdom. He does it 
through the Word. If we want to be a part of that growing kingdom, we need the Word. All right? So that's what we're going to start doing in Sunday school, really emphasizing the importance of the Word. That's why every time we preach up here, we're going to be preaching through a book of the Bible. Because who cares what Matthew Shores has to say? I've got some stupid opinions about plenty of things. Let's see what the Bible has to tell us. So it's the Word. It's the key. All right, let's move on. The previous parable was about how the kingdom grows. Start small, unimpressive, grows slowly over time, and it's the word that does it. How the kingdom grows. Right? But our last parable this morning is about how large the kingdom grows. It is there in verses 30 through 32. The kingdom of God is like a single mustard seed. A seed which Jesus says is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, I dealt with this a couple of times. Any critic would love to point out to you that, oh, by the way, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the earth. So they get all excited, like, ha-ha, Jesus made a mistake. You can't, you can't trust him. But that's just silly. First of all, the Greek word translated earth there can be translated land or, or ground. It doesn't have to refer to every single seed in the entire world. Okay? During Jesus' day, it was common for rabbis to, to make this comparison. They used the mustard seed quite frequently, just to illustrate something very small that had great potential and great power within it. Plus, Jesus is teaching. He's making a point. It's called hyperbole, right? I do it all of the time. You intentionally exaggerate for the purpose of making a point. Listen, Jesus isn't concerned here with a biological comparison of seed sizes across the globe, all right? That's, that's just not what he's doing. He wants to say simply that the kingdom is like something very small that gets very big. That's it. But the seed, if you think about it, is the perfect illustration for a kingdom. Think about a seed. Imagine an acorn. We, um, we're more familiar with acorns than we are with mustard seeds. And acorns, by the way, are significantly bigger than mustard seeds. But you have this tiny little acorn that which you can easily crush under your feet. If you hurled it down against the sidewalk, it would shatter. It's a small, little, fragile seed. But if you plant an acorn down in the ground, the growth is dramatic and unstoppable. Contained in this one tiny little seed is all the information necessary to grow this towering oak tree. And all the information that is needed for complex processes that we don't completely understand, like photosynthesis and establishing great root system and growing these leaves and transferring energy and all these amazing things that trees can do. By the way, this is completely, this has nothing to do with anything. But the world's largest acorn, just let me brag a little bit. The world's largest acorn is, is contained down in Raleigh, North Carolina, just in case, just in case you were wondering, right? It's called the, the City of Oaks down there. So our claim to fame is the world's largest acorn. It is 10 feet tall and it weighs 1,250 pounds. It's obviously not real. It's a statue of an acorn. So if you ever, if you ever need somewhere to go visit and see, uh, there's a giant acorn for you. So New York City has the Statue of Liberty and Raleigh has a giant nut. Um, <laughs> So I think we super upgraded by, by heading this way. Um, sorry, that had nothing to do with anything. Um, but an acorn, inch long, right, with just immeasurable power. It goes from an inch to these oak trees that are sometimes over 100 feet tall with a canopy spread over 80 feet wide. And you put these seeds in the ground close to a sidewalk, and the seed will win every time. It's slow growth over time shatters seemingly indestructible objects like sidewalk and cement and asphalt. There's unimaginable power and life contained in these tiny little seeds. You can think of a seed, it's kind of like a little computer chip. And they are tiny, right, really small, 
but they just contain unimaginable amounts of information. But there's one big difference between a seed and a computer chip. Computer chips are really cool and they're really impressive, but the seed has the power within itself to transform into the very thing that it possesses information about. That is amazing. That would be like a little computer chip transforming itself into an iPod or a MacBook, right? That would be extremely impressive, but that is what a seed can do. They're amazing. They're tiny with unimaginable power. They grow slowly but great, and they cannot be stopped by even the hardest of obstacles. That's a seed, and that's what Jesus says the kingdom is like. The kingdom grows, and it grows unimaginably large, but it starts as a tiny seed. Think about it. Jesus says that the kingdom comes with him. We have the birth of this little boy in backwoods Bethlehem, in the middle of nowhere, with not a lot of fanfare, in a completely just unimportant place. And then for 30 years, basically nothing happens. He grows up, he has a pretty normal, unremarkable life. It is a kingdom of one. But then all of a sudden he bursts onto the scene here in Mark 1, right? There's this great fanfare, there's these huge crowds, thousands of people are coming from all around to see this great man. It looks like this thing is really about to take off. But then he is arrested and tried and humiliated and discredited. He's labeled a heretic and hung up on a cross, naked to die in front of everyone. But do not forget John 12, 24. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus goes into the ground and he dies. But three days later, he comes back up out of that ground, right? This is it, right? It's really going to start to take off. But then 40 days later, when he ascends to heaven, he leaves behind 120 followers. In fact, small kingdom of 120. But then, then the Spirit comes, and then it really does take off. Peter, pre- Peter preaches one sermon in one day, and 3,000 people are saved. 120 to a kingdom of 3,120 in one afternoon. And then the church starts to go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in a very short period of time, this tiny seed has taken over the entire Roman Empire. They have spread all the way to India and well down south into Africa. And it continues on today, growing and growing and spreading throughout the entire world. Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, German, French, British, and we are well on our way. Many great kingdoms have risen to amazing power and influence, only to fall every time. But not the kingdom of God. Someone, every couple years, predicts the inevitable demise of Christianity and the kingdom of God. But it continues to grow, sure and steady. It has faced millennia of opposition, unlike any kingdom has ever faced. Yet it has never failed. It continues to grow, and it will continue to grow even greater until Christ returns. So that's how large the kingdom grows. But what should we take away from these parables? There was a lot that we just covered. What should we take away from these three parables as we close? Well, I think we should be encouraged. We should take heart. In the middle of a culture, in the middle of a city where it seems that Christianity is fading and that sin and lawlessness are taking over, we need not fear. We are promised here in our text this morning that the kingdom is growing, though we may not see it 
at times. We are promised that the kingdom will not only grow, but that it will grow very great. And all the way to fruition and completion. It has already started to come. It is not here fully yet, but it is guaranteed that it will be. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We can have hope. And hope is not the type of um, hope that the world thinks of as hope. Kind of cross your fingers, make a wish, like, man, I really hope this, this turns out for me. No, no. Hope in the Bible is confident trust that God will accomplish what He promises. And that is why we can listen and trust Jesus when He tells us in Matthew 6 to not be anxious, to never worry. <laughs> How are you doing with that one, by the way? Never worry. That is, that's a tough one. But think about it. We've been talking about all of this growth and this greatness of the kingdom, God's loving and perfect rule and reign, the return to paradise and the end of sin, suffering, evil, and death. That's what the kingdom is about. And it grows and it expands through the word. But how does it first come? It comes with Jesus Christ. It comes with the gospel. And the gospel is the very core of the seed. The gospel is the very heart of Christianity. And it is different than anything else you will find out there. And it is the message first that you are much more um, worse than you ever thought. So much worse, in fact, that you are a rebel, a traitor, an enemy of the Creator and the King of the Kingdom. And since He is a good and just ruler, He must punish crimes and rebellion. Just as we expect today, any just ruler or judge to punish crimes. The Bible calls these crimes against God sin. And we all know, deep down, if we're being honest with ourselves, that we are sinners. It just cannot be denied. You know that you do not live up to even your own personal standards that you set uh, for goodness. You know that you fall short. And the Bible tells us, very disturbingly, that the punishment for this sin is death. All right? And not just physical death but eternal death, separation from God, the, the source of all that is right and good. And that is a whole lot of bad news. But the good news is that God is not only just, but that He is merciful and loving. So He provides the way for us. We cannot take care of our own sin problem because we cannot be good enough. I have proved that over and over again in my life. I cannot be good enough on my own power. So he sends one who can. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to stand in our place. He was perfect where we fell woefully short. He was righteous where we were wicked. He was obedient where we were rebellious. He comes in and he stands in our place. There must be a payment for sin. God is just. Crime must be punished. So Jesus steps in and takes the punishment for us. He switches places with us. He is our substitute. He dies so that we can live. And that's the gospel. It is that you are more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe, but that you can be more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. And that is why we do not worry. The only problem we have that really matters, our sin and our separation from God, and our approaching eternity in hell has been taken care of. And tell me honestly, who cares about anything else? You have been forgiven. You have been freed. You have been reconciled to God, brought into the family, and spared an eternity of solitude and suffering, and given a relationship of eternal love. 
The kingdom has come. It is growing and it cannot be stopped. And its victory is guaranteed. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? No one is the answer. Nothing else matters. The only thing that matters eternally has been taken care of. This is God's kingdom come. Not mine. My kingdom was selfish and greedy and wicked and depressing and lonely and hopeless. Deep down, we all know that it is futile. We have all tried and failed enough to know that we cannot do it. We set New Year's resolutions every year, and two or three weeks later, we're just back doing the same thing. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. The guy who wrote this demon song even knows the condition of his own heart. And he's right. We cannot escape this now. We can't escape the grave. We can't escape hell. But Jesus can, and he has. He has done for us what we could not do. This is His kingdom come. Love, freedom, peace, identity, fulfillment, reconciliation, relationship, and eternal life. We know that we cannot do it, but we are so stuck, we are so sinful that we just keep trying the same thing over and over again. We just keep pushing that stone up the hill to watch it roll right back down. Right? But we will fail for the rest of our lives unless Jesus intervenes. My kingdom was a mess. It was miserable and it was a whole lot of work for nothing. Trust me, his kingdom is infinitely better. It is the only kingdom where you will find what you are looking for. It is the only kingdom where you will find rest. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your kingdom with him. We thank you that you are working even now, Father, to make all the wrongs right, to to wipe away every tear. Father, you are are already making all things new, and you promise that you will bring that into completion in the future. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy displayed to sinners, displayed to us who have separated ourselves from you, who have rejected you and spit in your face. Father, I confess my sin. I confess my proneness, Father, to wonder. My tendency, even after being um, reconciled and redeemed to you, to try to run in the other direction and establish my own kingdom. Father, make it so clear to us today just how uh, miserable and crumbling our kingdoms are. Father, show us our sin. Um, Show us so much more clearly your kingdom and your son and your grace and your love and your mercy in Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending us exactly what we need. We thank you for sending us a perfect substitute to take our place so that we could live with you. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for revealing yourself and all of this to us in your word. Make us a place that, that loves and cherishes and, and just proclaims your word to everyone we come in contact with. Make us a place um, that is a light, a lamp on a stand, Father, um, shining the gospel to a neighborhood that needs it. Father, fill this place with people who do not know you. We pray that in spite of my... Um, preaching. In spite of our sinfulness, Father, we pray that you would work in this place, Father, and that you would declare the gospel and that you would apply it to people's hearts and bring them back to life. Father, I thank you for just the blessing of, of loving and serving you. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in this place. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.